Our reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 6, beginning with verse 9 and reading through the rest of the chapter. The writer says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as He as to overlook your work and your love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all of their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What a beautiful song we just sang. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. We can be assured that Jesus is ours, and as we study this portion of the letter to the Hebrew Christians, we find how we are assured of that fact. The letter written to the Hebrew Christians is one, in my opinion, one of the greatest pieces of literature in existence. There's no small disagreement, though, on the literary genre of this manuscript. Is it a letter? Is it a sermon? Is it an exhortation, a speech, a commentary, or a treatise? Well, I think we find every aspect of all of those things within this letter, but I believe the letter written to the Hebrew Christians is just that. It's a letter. It's a letter written from someone who cared about them, who wanted to see them get to heaven, and who wanted to encourage them that they could be assured and have this blessed assurance that Jesus is theirs. Now the document titled to the Hebrews is one of the greatest sources of introduction, uh, instruction in Christ and in the faith. It's one of the greatest sources that someone can use to apply to their lives to get to where they want to go. It exhorts one to faithfulness and to a life of living for Christ over any other thing on which they could hope to do. But sadly, I believe for all practical purposes, many in the world have followed the lead of Martin Luther and have relegated the Hebrews to the non-working section of the canon, as if there was a non-working section. 
But I believe when Hebrews is ignored that it causes a great depletion in the soul, the spirit of man. When we look back over the history of the church, we learn that, that early Christians committed great portions of this to their memory and then they walked in the light of the knowledge that they had heard and learned. Restoration movement preachers used it regularly as a source for their preaching material. But in recent times, fewer and fewer sermons and lessons are taken from this magnificent book, Hebrews. And I believe the results of that great mistake is a decline in spiritual health and a lack of commitment for Christ that is seen in the rank and file of many congregations of the Lord's people. I believe the treasures found in this letter will encourage, they will exhort, and they do demand faithfulness to Christ based on the eternal truths. When God's Word is the foundational principle by which one lives, he will without doubt find himself to be pleasing to God every single time. And the book of Hebrews has so many practical areas of doctrine that need to be applied to our lives today. Honoring Jesus as God and Savior to all, we read about His superiority to to the prophets, His superiority to the angels, and His superiority to Moses. We read about Him and we ought to honor Jesus as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek and how He is a superior high priest. And when we understand that, we can draw nigh unto the throne of God with great confidence and boldness because He's a better qualified high priest than Aaron or anyone else who followed Him because His priesthood is of a higher order. It honors Christ's priestly ministry as better. It's better because it involves a better covenant. It's better because it has a better sanctuary. It's better because it has a better sacrifice. It demonstrates the superior faithfulness to the superior revelation given through Christ Jesus. And we find encouragement to endure in faith. There are exhortations concerning the perils that would get in the way of someone living a life of faith. We honor Jesus, or Jesus is honored in the the letter to the Hebrews And we honor Him by the duties that we find in there that the Christian is to have regarding social performances. We see how we are to behave toward our brethren, toward our spouses, and toward our contentment. We see within it, and we honor Jesus regarding the duties that we have uh, of our spiritual nature or our religious expectations that... God has for us. We're to imitate the faith of former leaders, the writer says. We're to be steadfast in the teachings of Christ. We are to be benevolent toward our fellow man, and we are to be obedient and submissive to spiritual authority. All those truths need to be studied, and they need to be learned, and they need to be applied to one's life. But this morning, I want our focus to be on the blessed assurance given to us within the pages of this marvelous manuscript. And that's the title of the sermon, Blessed Assurance. 
Our God wants us to be confident in our salvation. He doesn't want us to go around wondering whether or not we are saved. John said, And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. 1 John 2, 3. God has provided the means for us to know that we are saved. I believe the denominational world has kind of, in a sense, hijacked that term saved, and and we understand what they mean. The denominational idea of being saved is once saved, always saved. There's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. So I believe members of the Lord's church tends to shy away from that statement. Let's not allow that to happen. We can know that we are saved. We can know that we know Him. Because if we love Him, we will keep His commandments. Now within this wonderful book, there are at least five warnings given by the writer. As we look at the book of Hebrews as a whole, we ought to be able to kind of break it down in our minds in kind of an outline form. That way we can better understand what we're seeing and where we're going. But there are at least five warnings given to those Hebrew Christians. Now these warnings are given because the whole purpose of the letter is to prevent the Hebrew Christians from leaving Christ and going back into the Jewish religion. So five warnings are given, or at least five. The first warning that I find is in chapter 2, 1 through 4. That encourages the reader to pay closer attention to the truths that they have been taught about Christ Jesus, lest they drift from the truth. The second warning found in chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 13, chapter 3, verse 7, speaks to living the life of faith and not hardening one's heart toward hearing the truth. The third warning found in chapters 5, 11 through 6, 20, cautions against becoming dull of hearing or ignoring the commandments found in the gospel. The fourth warning, chapters or chapter 10, 19 through 31, spurs the reader to use the greater access to God through Christ's priesthood and what it offers. We find the fifth warning, chapter 12, 18 through 29. It details the superior privileges that we have in Mount Zion as opposed to Mount Sinai and the consequent responsibilities of Christians. Now this morning, our topic, Blessed Assurance, comes on the heels of that third warning. It follows the, uh, uh, the idea of not becoming dull of hearing. It follows the idea of paying attention to what we've heard. And it encourages us to remain faithful and to understand that we do have blessed assurance. Now the closing sentences of that warning emphasizes God's faithfulness to us. And the example of Abraham to encourage the readers is used because they would have an intimate knowledge of Abraham and they are continued or encouraged to continue in Christ instead of going back to that old defunct law. As the writers encourage the Hebrew Christians to realize their blessed assurance, to understand that they've got it, to not worry about the persecution or the the problems that they're facing in their social arena or in their civic arena or within the leaders of that Jewish religion that had been done away with. 
Don't worry about those things. He wants to give them the blessed assurance that heaven waits on the faithful. And he begins with the possibility of having hope in Christ. That's our first point. To realize the possibility of hope, the Christian, and that's who the the audience is here. The letter was written to Christians. For them to maintain or to keep that possibility of hope, they must maintain their Christianity. They must maintain their faith, right? Verse 9 begins with the words, But beloved. But beloved. Now the writer is reminding them that God loves them. He wants them to understand that. He wants them to understand God is willing to give assurance in how they could avoid the warning of becoming dull of hearing. But beloved, God loves you. Pay attention to these words because you can be assured of salvation and you can be in heaven one day. He also tells them that he is convinced that they will do things better. That they will behave better. That they will live a better life. Now these better things are those things stated in verse 7. The person who does that They'll make the proper use of the knowledge given to them. They will do the things that results from gaining that knowledge. And the blessings will be bestowed bestowed by God on those who do not apostatize. That's where the blessed assurance comes from, isn't it? They meet God's approval because they maintain in their lives the way Christ wants them to live and to behave and to interact. Now, in the context of our passage, the maintenance required are those things which lead to salvation. Well, someone says, but they're Christians. They're already saved. Absolutely. I I, I agree with that and believe that with all my heart. But they still had to maintain. They still had to engage in those things that lead to salvation because we can leave salvation. If it were not possible to leave salvation, this letter would have never been written. It wouldn't have mattered. They obeyed the gospel and then they go back to another religion. If you're once saved, always saved. Hebrews doesn't make a bit of difference. It would have never been written. Now the New Testament emphasizes both aspects of good works. And that's what the writer is talking about here. Sometimes they are the condition of one's salvation or the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. At other times, it's understood to be the response of one who appreciates his own salvation. Galatians 5, 6. So in the words of this warning, things that lead to salvation would be leaving the elementary teachings of Christ and moving on to maturity. Don't become dull of hearing. Be assured of your salvation by moving from Drinking milk to eating meat. Then they will not fall victim to being dull of hearing. They'll guard against being dull of hearing. They'll move on to maturity. And that is exactly what the writer expected. He wrote this letter so they would see that and they would do that. And the same stands true for us today. When that happens, one prevents himself, he says, from becoming slothful or sluggish. And he has the blessed assurance of salvation as he maintains. 
but we also realize our hope when we mimic those who have inherited the promise. Paul said we're to be followers of Him as He was a follower of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. Being an imitator of someone, that is the word that the writer intended here, involves not just doing like they are doing, but it also intends enjoying the same promises that they would enjoy. That's why we mimic them in the first place, isn't it? Now the word translated followers here is the word from which we get the English word mimic. We are to mimic. That's what Paul meant, or the writer of Hebrews, that's what he meant when he said, be ye followers. And he said... uh, He told the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. But who exactly were they to mimic? Exactly who is he talking about? Is he talking about Abraham and the other uh, patriarchs? Because Abraham is used as an example of the promise. He could be speaking about the New Testament heroes who, who gave their lives for the cause of Christ, such as Stephen and James. He could have even been talking about the church in Jerusalem who was a perfect example of not being dull of hearing, but being a very faithful congregation. Well, whoever the writer intended, and he could have intended all of those, we are to mimic those who have or will die for Christ. Either they died for Christ or they died being in Christ. The apostles died for Christ. Except for John, he died in Christ. And that's who we're to mimic. We have the blessed assurance when we realize the possibilities of hope by maintaining our faith and by mimicking the faithful. And we can understand that. We also can be assured of our blessed assurance based on the promise that God gave. That's our second point. He first made this eternal promise to Abraham, didn't he? We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11. We're introduced to Abraham and we learn a whole lot about Abraham. We learn a lot about his history. He was from the Ur of the Chaldeans. He was lived pretty close to the Euphrates River toward the southern part. And when God sent him to that place that he would show him, he followed the, uh, the Fertile Crescent all the way up and around into the land of Canaan. And that was the promise. And within the promise, he said, I'll make you a great nation. I'll give you a whole lot of children. I'll bless you, and I'll bless those who bless you. And I'll curse those who curse you. Hebrews six fourteen through 15. God told Abraham, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had endured, he obtained the promise. That fits with our last point, doesn't it? We're to mimic people like Abraham. He endured, and then he received the promise. We have blessed assurance because God made a promise to Abraham. And he kept his promise. That's assurance for us today. God does what he says he'll do. Not only did God promise blessings to Abraham, he swore he would give those blessings. I swear I'll give those blessings. Have you ever noticed that people, we need a lot of assurance, don't we? We need to be assured about a lot of things. 
We may academically understand that that's the truth and that we'll receive whatever it is we want to receive, but we like to be assured and reassured, right, that those things are going to happen. We want that assurance. Throughout the history of reading about Abraham and Jacob, we we read about them continually dialoguing with God and His giving them the promise. The promise that I gave to your father Isaac and to your grandfather Abraham. Reassuring and giving assurance. Since God could not swear by anything greater, He swore by Himself that those promises would come to fruition. You know, people in this world, we swear we affirm something, but we do so on a greater power, don't we? In the same way, God affirmed and He swore, but there was no greater power. So he swore unto himself, and he said that would come true. Now it's assurance because the promise was given to Abraham, and he received his promise. But we can have blessed assurance because the promise was given to all, not just Abraham. The writer said, Hebrews 6 verse 17, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise an immutability of his counsel, Confirmed it by an oath. Now who are the heirs of promise? That's something that's very important. That's something we need to figure out, right? That's something that would be some knowledge we need. Not so much Abraham or the other patriarchs. Not so much Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or those who came after Jacob, his uh, twelve sons. But we're talking about Christians. We're talking about the spiritual, the spiritual heirs of Abraham. Paul said this, Galatians 3, verse 7. He said, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Now go down to verse 26. He said, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, who's the ye? Who's he writing the letter to? To Christians, not to, not to those outside of Christ. For ye Christians are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We are heirs according to the promise given to Abraham, and that promise goes out to all. We can have blessed assurance that we'll receive that promise. An heir is someone who inherits something from someone else. They didn't work for it. It was given to them, right? The promise made to Abraham was the substance of his messianic hope. He understood in some sense that someone would come and they would be the pathway by which he could receive his promise. Job was the same way. Job said that that he would have a mediator at some point in the future. He didn't understand exactly how that was going to come about, but he knew it was going to happen. And of his messianic hope, speaking of Abraham, Christians are heirs. We are inheritors of the promise given to Abraham concerning the Messiah. And that's blessed assurance. God took an oath. 
when he repeated that to the heirs of the promise. He swore he'd do it, and then he took an oath. Even more evidence than Abraham had that God would do what he said he would do. That's blessed assurance. We have that promise given to Abraham, given to all who would be obedient. Blessed assurance. And why is it that the, that the heirs of the promise have more evidence? Well, the heirs have two unchangeable things. The writer says, has two un- unchangeable things on which to base their assurance of God that he's faithful to do what he said he would do. That's his oath and his promise. And it is impossible for God to tell a lie. Strong encouragement is given, we read in the text, to those who, who fled for the refuge, uh, cities of refuge. Now that's, that's a comparison to those under the old law who was the accidental manslayer. They could go to a place, these six cities, three on the eastern side and three on the western side of the Jordan River, and the accidental manslayer could go to this city of refuge and stay there as long as the high priest lived. And when the high priest died, he could go back into society, go back to his own home. And he uses that same example. We have a place to go for assurance. Christ is our refuge. If we stay in Christ, as long as He is high priest, and that's never going to stop, we have this blessed assurance. Our blessed assurance is founded in the possibility of realizing our hope. Our blessed assurance is founded in the promise that God gave. And our blessed assurance is also supported by the priesthood of Christ. That's our third and last point. Our encouragement is anchored in our hope. That word anchor is is something that is amazing. The figure here shifts from the cities of refuge to that of an anchor. What's an anchor used for? Well, sailors would cast out the anchor during during storms and it would it would stabilize the ship and would not allow the ship to to uh, drift over into rocks and be crushed upon the rocks and then ultimately leading, leading to the death of all on board. As long as the anchor held the ship, the ship was safe from drifting into destruction. So the anchor was important. Hope for heaven is compared to a ship's anchor. What's our anchor? Hope is the most important thing, or one of the most important things, to a person's soul. It is the antithesis of the terrible things that happen in this life that would tend to cause someone to want to drift away from God. Someone who, who would allow the despairs of this life take a grip upon them and cause them to walk away. That's what was happening in the immediate context. The despair, the persecution, the sadness, the, the sense of hopelessness because of all the things happening to those Christians had taken a grip upon them and they were drifting away. Therefore, the five warnings. And in this warning, the hope, of heaven is compared to a ship's anchor. And it does the same thing as a ship's anchor does for the ship. It holds us steady. It keeps us from drifting. If we maintain our hope and we maintain our faith 
and we look to the promises and we understand that and we look around us and say, you know, even if we're having a wonderful and a great life, it's very temporary. So we need to look to the future. During the tempest of this life, the Christian's mind can be calmed through hope. Paul spoke of the peace of hope when he wrote, And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.7 We have a blessed assurance because of the encouragement of hope. But that encouragement of hope is also eternal. Just like the priesthood of Christ. The writer said our hope was both sure and steadfast. Christ's priesthood is sure and it is steadfast. Two things about an anchor are important if the storm is going to be weathered. The first is the the makeup of the anchor. Is the anchor strong? Will it not bend as the ship is being pulled back and forth if it hooks onto a rock? It has to hook onto something. And that's the other thing that we have to understand about an anchor. If an anchor is cast down simply to a sandy bottom of the ocean, it's not going to maintain the ship. It'll still just drift along. So you have to have the integrity of the anchor and you have to have the placement of the anchor if it is going to do what it needs to do. Now, the Christian's hope is absolutely reliable. It's absolutely reliable. Christ will be exactly what He said He was. He will do exactly what He said He would do and it keeps the soul steadfast and sure during the storms of life. Now, our eternal anchor of hope was not placed in the sand, was it? It was placed in Christ where it could be held. It was placed in such a greater place than anywhere else. It was in the safest place possible. And that place was behind the veil. Behind the veil. Christ went into the holiest place one time. And so we see this third figure being introduced in which Jesus is depicted as a forerunner. Well, as the forerunner, Jesus is different from all those other Old Testament uh, priests who were just simply representatives of men, but nothing more. They represented themselves to God. And they stood before God on behalf of mankind. But they were just simply a part of the human race. The Levitical priesthood allowed for the high priest to enter into that holiest of holies one time a year, but that did not allow for all the other people to enter into it. What would happen if someone entered into that room that was not authorized to be there? They lost their lives. What happened if that high priest who was authorized to go in there one time a year went in whenever he felt like it? He would lose his life. So because he was authorized to enter into the holy place behind the veil, didn't mean anyone else could enter in. They had to depend on that individual. Christ entered the veil one time, and because he entered through the veil, he allows for all people to enter into that holiest of holies, and of course that is heaven. And we have that blessed assurance if we choose to go there. Isn't that wonderful to be able to have that blessed assurance to know for a fact we can get to heaven because of the possibility of hope? 
because of the promise given and because of the priesthood of Christ? See, Jesus differed from those Levitical priests. They were simply a type or a shadow. That holiest of holy was a type or a shadow of of heaven itself. The psalmist said this, Psalm 110.4, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He will never stop being a priest. Our blessed assurance, we can be safe in Him as long as He is high priest. The Old Testament indicated that the Messiah would be a priest, but of a different order. He would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He would not inherit it from his parents. Uh, Aaron's sons were, were high priests because he was a high priest. A person was, uh, could work within the tabernacle and the temple simply because of their lineage of being in the, uh, the, the tribe of Levi. Not so with Christ. Christ didn't inherit the priesthood. Melchizedek didn't inherit the priesthood. That's the whole point. He was simply designated. If the reader had been tempted to become dull of hearing by understanding that, they would not. They could be assured. We have a blessed assurance founded in the prospect of our hope, the promise of God, and the priesthood of Jesus. But we cannot have that hope unless we are just like the people to whom the letter was written. The letter was written to Christians. That's the first thing. That's where our blessed assurance begins. Obedience to the gospel plan of salvation. We understand what that is. We understand what Jesus taught about that and what the the apostles and the other inspired writers taught about it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Without faith it is impossible to please Him. Hebrews 11 verse 6, Romans 10, 17. Repentance of all past sins. Repent and be converted, Peter said. Acts 3.19 Paul said we were to, uh, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And that's the confession the Ethiopian eunuch made, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then like the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8 verse 37, just like Paul, Acts 22 verse 16, And everyone else we find in the book of Acts who obeyed the gospel, following that confession, they went down into the water and they were buried, fully immersed, so their sins could be washed away. And then they lived a faithful life, those who wanted to maintain that blessed assurance. That's what God expects. Sometimes we don't do that. Sometimes we we step outside the light. We're not walking properly. We're not maintaining our faith. And so God made provision for that. Through repentance and confession, He will forgive us if we ask Him. If you have need to answer the Lord's invitation this day, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.